0: open and find the second book in it, the book of Exodus. So Exodus will be our focus this summer. As I've noted a number of times, we have been on the back end of our Bibles in the book of Revelation for the past nine months or so. Uh, We're going to spend a few weeks on the front end in the book of Exodus. We're not going to focus on any one particular passage in Exodus this morning. I, my plan and hope is to try to give a bit of an overview um, of the whole book. Yeah, it's, it's more difficult than you think it's, <laughs> that is. Uh, at least some of the most important themes and, 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 and how uh, Exodus fits into the overall story of the Bible. I mean, we've emphasized so many times how um, Scripture uh, comprises 66 different books written by almost 40 different men over a period of about 1,500 years. And yet, and, 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 in, and in three different languages Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Um, and yet, because because each of those almost 40 men were, uh, as, as the Apostle Peter, or as, as, as Paul said, were writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and as Peter says, Men spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Um, though, it, though it was written by many different men, it tells one story because it is the story of one God speaking through all of them. And we need to know how, therefore, each each constituent part fits into the whole, and and how it contributes to that larger story. And I've tried to give a lot of heads up about this study in weeks past. I've encouraged you to read Exodus on your own before. We before we begin so that we when we begin this study in earnest you will have a good base for understanding and and, and, and a good frame of reference for everything we're going to talk about uh, and you'll just get more out of it you still have time this morning is the overview next week we'll dive in in chapter 1 verse 1 um, and I will, what I plan to do I will try to because we're going to cover there's 40 chapters in this book and there's only so many weeks so I've, I've got, I'll, I'll have to cover big chunks at a time. So I'll try to give enough heads up of the big chunk that we're going to cover any particular week so that you could go ahead and read that chunk again. Um, but anyway, today I'm just giving an overview. And really there's no, there's no adequate, as I was trying to type this thing out, I just thought there's just no adequate way to do this completely satisfactory, to bring to light every noteworthy theme, every noteworthy, Uh, detail or significant pattern or... Anyway, it appears in just one overview. But rest assured, Lord willing, as we make our way through this study, whatever we don't say this morning, uh, we'll try to bring as many of those things to light as possible uh, as we make our way through it because each one is going to enhance our understanding understanding of and confidence in the gospel. Um, But here I just want to hit some of the high spots. Um, Just to be clear, since this is the first study... Exodus was written by Moses um, and it was written probably just after the Exodus event out of Egypt, which was about roughly 1500 BC. Um, So that's when it was written. Uh, And that's why we say, by the way, even though there might have been some, uh, a couple of books that were written of the Bible written before Moses wrote, for example, Job, we might think is the oldest book, even with that outlier, because... The, the bulk of the earliest books were written by Moses. That's why we say the Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years because you think the Exodus was roughly 1,500 B.C., and the end of the Bible was written by the apostles who lived in the time of Jesus. So that's how we know that. Again, we don't have one particular passage to study in particular today, but I want to begin at least with a well-known passage, read it, just to, to get a, a flavor of the most important event of Exodus so turn flip over to chapter 3 and uh, I just want to read the first 15 verses uh, as 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 an outset so follow along with me as I read aloud beginning in verse 1 reading through verse 15 now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro the priest of, of Midian and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb the mountain of God And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So they were on Mount Sinai at that time. So then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? Okay, can I just pause right here and just say, that it just shows you how, how far the gap is between the, the end of Genesis and the, the 400 years that they were slaves in Egypt. That, that, that he, Moses doesn't even know who God is, really. And he anticipates that none of the other people will know either. What's his name? Who is our God? Think about that. Anyway, anyway, um, The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Let's pray. Um, uh, Lord, um, what we just read and everything we'll look at this morning, every word that we'll study this summer in this study through, through Exodus, Every, every word, every syllable uh, is your holy inspired, inerrant, sufficient clear, authoritative and necessary word and uh, Lord we, we ask you that you would get, please give us eyes to see the rich truth in Exodus. Please give us minds to understand it clearly hearts to marvel and and uh and trust and love and embrace everything that we see here and wills to obey whatever it should admonish us to obey lord would you please please give me the help that i need to teach please give us all ears to hear what the spirit says to us and i pray it in jesus name amen all right here's how i want us to think through this overview of exodus i hope you you taking notes we got a lot to to cover and a lot to say Um, because it Exodus is 40 chapters like I said Uh, there's no way we can cover everything but here's where I want us to focus this morning four things Uh, first I want us to be clear on the place of Exodus the place of Exodus and by that I mean simply how the book of Exodus contributes to the storyline of the Bible Um, coming out of the book of Genesis. And into the books that follow for the rest of the canon the place of Exodus in that storyline then secondly I want us to note quickly the providence the providence of Exodus and in that point I want to take particular notice of God's purpose God's actions in the book of Exodus and and here in this point in the in the in the providence of Exodus I want us to notice two main divisions of the book. There's, there's 40 chapters and a lot of stuff going on, but I think thematically there's two main sections within the book of Exodus. Um, that in, in two main sections in terms of what God is doing, in terms of what God is trying to accomplish in his providential aims and providential purposes. That's point number two. Point number three, the patterns of Exodus. The patterns of Exodus. And in this section, I want to consider... Um, a few important examples of typology, and I, if you don't know what typology is, I hope you will by the time this morning is over. Uh, typology presented to us in the book of Exodus, and in the general theme of Exodus, uh, not just in this book, but in Scripture itself, um, not just Old Testament but New Testament as well. And then finally, as you might have anticipated already, I want to finish by acknowledging the purpose of Exodus specifically in, ha- in, in, in how the actual historical event of the Exodus as presented to us in the book of Exodus is fulfilled typologically um, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Fleshing out, the purpose is the, the final fleshing out of all of those patterns of Exodus that we will have seen in the third point that they were always pointing forward to. All right, there is plenty for us to highlight this morning. I hope that will give us a taste of what's coming in the book, and um, yeah, anyway, let's start at the beginning, and think first about the place of Exodus. Um, the, the book of Exodus, and by the way, I'm going to mention a lot of scripture, if, if we're in the book of Exodus, I, don't, I would encourage you to flip and look as I'm, uh, some, some, some scriptures I'll just have to say, because we just don't have time, so jot down the references, okay, turn to what you can. But the book of Exodus um, really and truly is, is one of the most important and pivotal books in our Bibles for a number of reasons, uh, not the least of which, though, is just this basic point that it provides an indispensable link in the story of the people of Israel and in the, just the, the flow of the story of the, of the Bible from what you see in Genesis when you get to the end of Genesis, to what you see later in the Old Testament. I mean, just, just in terms of the unfolding story, Genesis, the, it, that book ends, the end of Genesis ends uh, having explained to us how the people of Israel, which at that point was still clearly more a family than a nation, how they found themselves in Egypt through the providential circumstances of Joseph, uh, whose brothers had sold him into slavery. And you remember the end of uh, Genesis, in Genesis chapter 50, uh, you know, what they meant for evil, God meant for good, and hence the, the people of Israel, which is the family of Abraham, they, they found themselves in Egypt, but in a favored place, in a, in a favored position in Egypt, and a highly exalted one because of Joseph. Now, God had promised... Abraham, all the way back in chapter 12 uh, of Genesis and, and many other places after that, that he would bring them up out of, he bring Abraham and his family out of that land of Egypt uh, into their own land, into the land of Canaan. Uh, and, and even Joseph, Joseph, the one whom God had highly exalted, second in command only to Pharaoh, even Joseph at the end of his life in Genesis 50, at the very end of Genesis, um just before his death he repeats that promise he says in genesis chapter 50 verse 24 and you're just a page or two away in your own bibles if you want to turn there and look at but genesis 50 verse 24 and joseph said to his brothers i'm about to die but god will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to get that he swore to abraham to isaac and to jacob and then after that he gave instructions to them about what to do with his bones when they go into, whenever it is that they go into that land, take my bones with you, right? <laughs> um, which is a beautiful picture of his belief in a, in a future resurrection, you know? Um, but even with that, you can go back, but even with that, that, that promise, still for the future. One day God's going to bring you out of this land. One day, even at, at, at the time of Joseph's death, even though we were in a favored position, one day God's still going to make good on His promise to bring us into our own land. That's still, uh, that, that, that's a promise looking to the future. But the people of Israel at that point, though, were in that favored position. If you didn't have the book of Exodus, you wouldn't be able to make sense of things that, that you read even later in the Old Testament. For example, you have the repeated uh, refrain. For example, throughout the book of Deuteronomy, this, it, it, there's it just, over and over, you hear this, this, this phrase: God tells them, "You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt." How did that happen, right? If we didn't have the book of Exodus, we we were favored in exodus where when were we slaves or or how did the how did israel come to be a whole nation of people uh you with, with descriptions in joshua and in descriptions like first kings 420 judah and israel were as many as the sand by the sea when 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 did that happen because we were just a, a small family or or jesus in the, in the New Testament, telling the Jewish rulers in John 7, 19, has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Who is this Moses guy? And, and, and where did this guy, where did, where did, where did he come from? Where, what is this law if you didn't have the book of Exodus? shall I mean, be sure, even if you have the law repeated in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy means second law. The word means second law. Well, where, when, when was the first one? If you didn't have Exodus, there are huge gaps. Is all I'm trying to say. There are huge gaps in the biblical story without the book of Exodus. Ex- Exodus is the second of the four books of the Old Testament known as the books of Moses, or five. And it's in, it's in Exodus that we're introduced to the person of Moses, the, the significance of whom it is impossible to overstate. Like, it is impossible to overstate the importance of Moses. All right. And, and it's, it, 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 it's in Exodus that we're introduced to why this book is called that, how a family grew into a nation, how that nation lost that favored state in, 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 in Egypt, uh, but how God fo- began to fulfill his promise to bring them out of that land and start the process of bringing him, them into their own land. That's just, that's just how, why, the, why the Exodus is... An important link, just in the in the flow of the story of the Bible but beyond the importance of the book of Exodus for the flow of the whole biblical storyline there is a lot to see within the story of Exodus itself that doesn't just help us understand the flow of the biblical story but the meaning of the biblical story um, and one way we see that is by paying close attention to the providence of Exodus Um, That is, paying close attention to God's purpose and his action in the book. Think with me about the providence of Exodus. Um, Exodus is 40 chapters long, and there are a number of distinct neighborhoods in the book of Exodus. There's the neighborhood of chapters that talk about Moses' early life. There's the neighborhood of Moses' confrontation with Pharaoh. There's the neighborhood of the plagues. There's the neighborhood of the Passover and the plundering of the Egyptians. There's the the neighborhood of the Exodus itself. There's the neighborhood of them complaining in the wilderness. There's the neighborhood of him giving God giving the law. There's the neighborhood of the tabernacle, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Whole system of sacrificial offerings. Even though you have all of those different neighborhoods, there are really two primary um, divisions. In the book, in terms of distinct emphases and focuses um, that's demonstrated within those, those episodes, two primary realities that God was providentially bringing about in all of those different things. What do I mean by that? The two overall divisions uh, in the book, in terms of emphases of God's providential purposes, are the first one is chapters 1 through 15. Chapters 1 through 15 is the first overall division in the book, and then the second one is chapters 16 through the end of the book, 16 through 40. Division 1, chapters 1 to 15, division 2, 16 to 40. Each of those two huge sections have distinct providential emphases. What are they? In chapters 1 through 15, God's providential emphasis appears to be on demonstrating his glory in the eyes of all people that is the that is the nail that is being hammered in the first 15 chapters God demonstrating his glory in the eyes of all people then in chapter 16 through 40 his providential purpose appears to be on manifesting his presence among his own people okay manifesting his presence among his own people consider those two things maybe for just a second in the passage we read at the outset in chapter 3, uh, the passage about God encountering Moses in the, in the uh, burning bush, what in that passage, what did God say um, was his providential purpose for his people in bringing them out of Egypt? He says, uh, and, why, and And in revealing His name and everything to them. He says in, in Genesis 3.15, This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Think about that whole concept biblically. Uh, 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 to remember God biblically is to acknowledge Him, to acknowledge His glory. Um, why do we say that? Because think about how... How often the opposite of that is is talked about in in Scripture Um, uh, that that all throughout Scripture uh, forgetting God is often associated with not acknowledging him not giving him the glory that he is due seeking the glory for ourselves that only belongs to him that's forgetting God so remembering him is acknowledging him God is doing this not just for their good but for his glory I don't, I'm not doing this for you just so you won't be slaves, but so that I will be glorified in you. Or think about the, mat, the, 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 the famous matter of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. That is mentioned several times, but think carefully about the reason. The reason that God, that is often stated for why God is hardening Pharaoh's heart. For example, uh, chapter 7 Verses 3 through 5, if you want to flip over there. Chapter 7, verses 3 to 5. God says, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt. I just want to pause right there and tell you to, can you just highlight that phrase, I will lay my hand on him? Just just put a little check mark. That phrase is going to show up again in a minute. So just remember that. And think about what it means right here. I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, uh, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the people of Israel from among them. They will know that I am the Lord, not their gods. I am God. And we'll see this very clearly, for example, in the plagues. Um, if you were here, I think in the summer or early, or, or Pastor Brian, uh, one, he preached one or two sermons a while back on the plagues. Were phenomenal. phenomenal. Um, go back and listen to those. They'll be better than what I do. Anyway, um, or, or think about, go ahead and flip over to chapter 14, just another example of this. Um, in chapter 14, verse 4, God says, I, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. I will get glory over him. And just a few verses later, down in verses 17 and 18, and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they, they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians Not just Pharaoh, the Egyptian shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. And just just think about how not only obvious this point is because it's so just in your face stated so many times, I'm going to get glory over him. It just, how can you miss that? But also how God providentially orchestrated the events to maximally demonstrate his glory overall. Michael Morales has a a great book on the Exodus in which he makes this point. He points out that it seems seems counterintuitive initially uh, that if God's plan was simply to set his people free out of slavery in Egypt... It seems counterintuitive, then, to harden Pharaoh's heart uh, for him to oppose that very thing. Why not simply move in Pharaoh's heart to grant them permission and let them go? If, If delivering them out of slavery is the mere point, why not just move in his heart? Let my people go. Okay, off you go. Why, 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 why not do it that way? Because to do it that way, the, the watching world in that, sen, in that sen, sense might give Pharaoh the glory that is due only to God because it makes Pharaoh look so benevolent. And he's the one that did it. Right? In hardening Pharaoh's heart, God providentially ensured that it would be his glory alone demonstrated to the watching world over Pharaoh's. So complete was God's providential accomplishment of this that in chapter 15, the capstone of this first section in the Song of Moses, the song rhetorically asks in verse 11, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? At this point in the story, the undeniable answer is, no one who is like you majestic in holiness awesome and glorious deeds doing wonders and so providentially complete was his accomplishment of this that if you think back to last summer a, g- a whole generation after this there is a pagan Canaanite prostitute named Rahab who knew all about this and had heard about this Lord you move on though and to the second main division of the book, in chapter sixteen through forty, when we move into that, it's not as if there's no more mention of God's glory and no more no more uh, talk about wanting to demonstrate His glory. I mean, and just to show you that, for example, in the very first chapter of that section, chapter sixteen, when the people are in the wilderness and they're grumbling because they're hungry, and God begins to provide quail and bread and manna bread from heaven Moses tells them in verses 6 and 7 in chapter 16 at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord because he's heard your grumbling against the Lord so he still wants them to know his glory it's not like that that just completely goes away but if you think in terms of chapter 16 through the end of the book and what you find in that broad section the overwhelmingly God's providential emphasis in that latter part of the book is to demonstrate how His presence could abide among His people. Um, Just consider some major ways in which we see that. In chapter 19, God is about to deliver His law to the people through Moses, and His his emphasis in chapter 19 is, is squarely on how the one who is matchless in holiness, as the song of Moses declares, who is like you in holiness. How, the emphasis on how this, this God who is matchless in holiness, how he cannot be near his people as things stand right then. He cannot be near them. He graciously calls Moses up the mountain. But what does he tell the rest of the people in verse 12? Tell the rest of the people, take care not to go up the mountain or to touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. And it becomes clear through the law that he then delivers that God himself is providing the means by which His presence could dwell among a sinful people. Consider chapter 24. After he delivers this this law, now more of it will be uh, explained in the latter chapters, but by chapter 24, the law had been delivered to Moses. And if you compare chapter 19 and chapter 24, in in chapter 19, no other people could, could draw near to God. Moses, Aaron, go up the mountain, you tell everybody else, don't even touch the mountain, right? That's chapter 19. Now, after the law has been delivered and sacrifices have been offered according to that law, we're told in chapter 29, verses 24, verses 9 through 11, then Moses and Aaron, comma, Nadab and Abihu, comma, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up. And they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. Here's that phrase again. And he did not lay his hand on them. He did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. And they beheld their God and ate and drank. God laid his hand on Pharaoh. God laid his hand on the Egyptians. He did not lay his hand on them. As they not only were in the presence of God, absent from his judgment, but also full of fellowship, they ate and drank. And there are chapters and chapters and chapters of extensive and meticulous instructions for the building of the tabernacle. Who was to build what? And how the camp was to be precisely or, organized around the the tabernacle and when they moved from one place to another how precisely it was to happen it just the overwhelmingly overwhelming meticulousness of it it's supposed to impress upon you it's not to bore you it's to impress upon you how it is only by the way that God has said that we can draw near to him and the sinful people can dwell in his presence the last words of the book though in chapter forty, are gonna are gonna be just like the song of Moses was the capstone of the first section, chapter forty is the capstone of the second one, the last words of the book, verse chapter forty verses thirty four and following, um, just emphasize the, how now this the, in the tabernacle and the and the and the the the, um, the sacrifices that were offered, this the mediated presence of God descends on the tabernacle which sat at the center of Israel's camp. And, 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 and his presence was indicated by a cloud that settled on it. His presence dwelt in the midst of his people. These two emphases hammer home the two emphases that you need to take away from the book of, Israel, uh, book of Exodus. Above all else. Not to say these are the only two things to take away from the book of Exodus. But if you take two things away, take away these two things. Because this is what Exodus is trying to hammer home to you. That God is to be glorified above all. And he has made a way for sinners to dwell forgiven in his presence. That's the two points of Exodus. Unquestionably. But it's also important to see that these things are to be understood in Exodus in a typological way. A typological way. Let me, exp- let me try to explain what I mean by that. Let's consider for a minute the patterns of Exodus. The, the Exodus that we read about in the book of Exodus is a pattern that, we, that is repeated time and time again in Scripture, in, 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 in other ways, smaller ways, bigger ways. And for good reason, we'll see we'll see this, why, why this is a pattern in the last point that we study in just a minute. But Exodus, Exodus, or deliverance and redemption out of exile, that's what Exodus is. It's deliverance or it's redemption out of exile. That is a constant theme in Scripture um, in, in, in which the book of Exodus and the story that we find here is is but the clearest example. It's the clearest and fullest example of that typological, typological example. Let me first make clear what I, what do I mean by typology, and what do I mean by typological. There's I, I got to just get to the nitty gritty right here. So, in Scripture, typology is such an important feature of it. I, if you understand typology, you will understand so much more about your Bible. T like T Y P, type t-y, like a type is T Y P E, typology T Y P O L O G Y, typology. typology. Um, good question. Uh, a a type in the Bible is is a picture. It's a foreshadow of something else still to come later, right? Uh, The the anti-type, the anti-type, A-N-T-I-T-Y-P-E, that is the thing that the type was pointing forward to. You've got type and anti-type. Type Type is the the foreshadow. Anti-type is the reality, okay? It's the real thing. And broadly speaking, in the Bible, types are seen in people, events, and institutions. People, events, and institutions. People can be types of something coming. Events can be types of something coming. Institutions, like the whole sacrificial system, can be types of something else coming. And secondly... The antitypes, the, 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 ty- the thing that they're pointing forward to in the Bible, those things are always other and greater. They're other and greater than the, than the, the, the types, than the signposts, right? Um, it's I think just one example, why do we believe this? Because things, things that Jesus said, We don't have time to go into Jonah and Solomon here, but Jonah and Solomon in their own distinctive ways were types of Jesus. And Jesus comes along in Matthew chapter 12 and referring to himself, Jesus says something greater than Jonah is here. Something greater than Solomon is here. That's Matthew 12, 41 and 42. And the pattern of exile in Egypt and deliverance out of that exile, out of Egypt, is a repeated typological um, event pointing, pointing away from itself to a greater thing coming. Let's start at the beginning and, 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 and work fast, okay? Adam and Eve were exiled out of the Garden of Eden. They were exiled out of the Garden of Eden, out of the pre- away from the presence of God. I'm gonna have to skip over a lot, so just—they're exiled out of the out of garden, out of the presence of God. And what does the world do in that place? The world seems to go its own rebellious way in that place of exile, out of Eden, east of Eden. Um, Cain is their son. What does Genesis early chapters of Genesis say? Cain settles in the land of Nod. Nod means wandering he settles in the place of wandering away from God and he tries to find fulfillment there he builds a city he names that city after his own son which is another way of of saying uh, he is he's attempting to perpetuate his own name and his own glory in that city that skipping over some things prefigures the Tower of Babel, the city of Babel, where they build a tower in which they're trying to make a name for themselves in that place east of Eden, that place of exile. Let's let's make our home. Let's find our fulfillment here. Exile, east of Eden, exile out of the presence of God is, 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 is figurative of being under the curse of God, wandering from God, seeking our fulfillment outside of God, working for our own glory instead of God's. It is out of this place of exile in Ur of the Chaldeans that God graciously calls Abram. It's out of that that He calls Abram, later named Abraham and his wife Sarah. Abraham's life was an exodus out of his exilic homeland in Ur of the Chaldeans into a place that God was going to bring him, a, a land that God had promised to, to, to him. But think about the rest of Exodus. Think about Abraham's life. Even though God, you know, his, his life right at that point was a, was a tiny little exodus out of exile in Ur into the, into the land that God was going to show him, in that place of wandering to the promised land in, Abraham, in the rest of Abraham's life, Abraham's life from that point on is a type of the, the larger exile of the people of God in Egypt that we read about in Exodus. Think about the, think, this is some of the parallels. There are more, I promise you. But think about it. In Genesis 12, Abraham and Sarah descend into Egypt because of a famine. And when they, remember Abraham tells a lie, she's not my wife, she's my sister. Because of his stupidity, when they are in Egypt, but Sarah is captured by Pharaoh and essentially is enslaved by Pharaoh. Until what happens? Until God intervenes through a dream given to Pharaoh and and he delivers Sarah out of slavery to Pharaoh and it says, even in chapter 12, verse 16, that not only does he give Sarah back, he sends them a bunch of riches together with him. So he plundered the Egyptians. And beyond that, there, there, there are so many other comparisons, but these types of episodes and, and types would, would multiply again and again and again in the lives of Isaac, in the, in the, in, in, in the life of Jacob, in the life of Joseph. And in the most pertinent for our study, in the, life, in the early life of Moses himself, which I'm not going to talk about today, maybe next week. Uh, and Because we'll, we'll point these out when we come to those points in the study. But, but, but for the sake of this point, the pattern seen in these early little exoduses, like in the life of Abraham, and in the big exodus in the book of Exodus, the pattern does not stop with the book of Exodus. It doesn't. The pattern continues as the Old Testament proceeds. Consider the book of Joshua that we, we studied last summer. Joshua is like another Moses, right? And, 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 and Rahab and her scarlet cord that she lays out of her window is like another Passover la- blood put on the doorstep. And they cross the Jordan River in the same fashion that the, the generation before crossed the Red Sea. You move on later in the Old Testament, and you have in the Psalms, you have... Some Psalms that, that consistently look back on the, the exodus of Israel out of Egypt, Psalm 74, Psalm 78, Psalm 136, they look back on that, that, that previous exodus out of Egypt. But in many other Psalms, it's also looking forward to another exodus still to come, a bigger and better exodus. We don't have time to look at it, but Psalms 106 through 108 Psalm 110, Psalm 135, Psalm 137. They all prophesy of another and a better Exodus coming. And of course the prophets do this too later in the Old Testament. This is is Isaiah 11, verses 15 and 16. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath And strike it into seven channels, and he will lead his people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria, which is the place of exile here, for the remnant that remains of his people. And there was for Israel when they came up out of the land of Egypt. Do you see, did you hear, how even in that prophecy, it's not just prophesying of another exodus, but a better one. When he... When when God blows over the waters with his scorching breath, there will not just be one channel that they cross, seven channels in which they cross. Jeremiah 16, verses 14 and 15, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries that he had driven them for I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. But the prophets also saw that that future exodus, like we already saw a little bit in Isaiah 11, would be other, and it would be greater than the exodus that we read about in the book of Exodus. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. He shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute judgment and righteousness, justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will, be, will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. Bringing it all together in this point, the, the fact that we see the pattern of Exodus before the book of Exodus, in the book of Exodus, in the historical books like Joshua, in the Psalms, in the prophets, all throughout, it point, they, 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 they show us that the Exodus event in the book of Exodus was not an end in itself. It's a signpost saying something better's coming. And we see, what we we'll need to think about that in these final minutes in the purpose of Exodus. Note that very the purpose of Exodus our fourth and final point to see this I want to take you to a familiar passage that I've mentioned several times Luke chapter 9 Luke chapter 9 this is the passage of Jesus transfiguration and it is the place where we see most clearly in Jesus Christ both of the emphases of the book of Exodus. We see in Jesus the glory of God made manifest, and we see the presence of God among his people. So Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 36 is where we read about the transfiguration. And I've mentioned it before, but maybe you've never thought about it. In these verses, there are so many allusions to the book of Exodus. There are so many allusions, particularly to Exodus 24 that we looked at earlier. And if you're looking at this passage, i want to move to this a little quickly, but just, it says in verse 28, now about eight days after, eight days after, they went up on the mountain. That is the same as in Exodus 19 when God first told Moses to go up on the mountain, it was eight days after that that he actually went up on the mountain. So eight days after, Jesus took his guys up on the mountain. Um, In verse 29, Jesus' appearance to them becomes dazzling white. Dazzling white. That harkens back to when the people looked on the mountain where God met with Moses. lightning. Not to mention, in verse 30, Moses is here. Moses appears there with Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. The glory of God is mentioned several times. And how is the glory of God represented in this Transfiguration passage? By a cloud, a cloud that descends on that mountain, and the guys enter the cloud of God's glory. That's Exodus. And what does Peter offer to build them? Tabernacles. It says tents. It's the same word for tabernacles. You want me to build you some tabernacles? Man, you've got the glory of God being manifested on the mountain and tabernacles. I mean, it's just Exodus all over again. The way that this is told is is explicitly to link that old story to this new story. It is is going way out of its way for you to read this story and think of that old story. Why? Why is it doing that? Because of what Moses and Elijah say about Jesus in verse 31. It tells us in verse 31 that they spoke of his departure which jesus was about to accomplish at jerusalem and if you didn't know this already i've told you this many times that word in the greek for departure is the greek word exodus jesus was about to accomplish an exodus at jerusalem and moses is the one saying that moses is saying you remember what happened to me watch this the cross and the resurrection of Jesus is the true and better exodus. The story of exodus, the Old Testament story of exodus has a purpose and it is to remind us not only of a better story coming because it's a good story but but a better exodus that really happened in time and in history just like the first one did. We have every reason to Hope and be of good cheer. Um, We're going to have plenty to talk about this summer. I hope you'll be here, and I I hope you'll do plenty of reading and studying of Exodus on your own before you come each week. I, I, I trust you'll get a lot more out of it.